Um, okay, so let, let's carry on uh, with our series that we're working our way through. Now, last week, uh, as part of my introduction, as part of what I was starting with, I was sharing how uh, one of mine and Steph's favorite TV programs has, has very rudely been interrupted because Meghan Markle is getting married to Prince Harry next weekend, and she was one of the lead actors in this program, Suits, that we enjoy. Uh, and actually, I had some more distressings well over the top. But it was, it was distressing news about another TV program uh, that I really like. It's a show called Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, and I heard, seeing lots of nods, uh, and I um, found out on Thursday that the show was being cancelled after its fifth season. So the, 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 um, the channel in the States that owned the rights to it, they were cancelling it, they weren't renewing it. It was all very sad. There was lots of stuff going on on social media, people reacting. Um, but good news, yesterday it was announced that another channel have picked it up and so season six is going to return. Uh, but what was really interesting was uh, some of the articles that were coming out and some of the discussions that people were having, uh, particularly online and through, through Twitter was where I was seeing it, these conversations about the program. And there was quite a few people who were saying, actually, there were, there were lots of people when the program first came out decided that they weren't going to have anything to do with it, they weren't fussed by it, they weren't going to watch it because they'd made presumptions about the characters. So they'd seen the way it was advertised and they'd seen the way it had been marketed and already had decided before even seeing the show, don't really want to have anything to do with it, I don't like the look of those characters, I don't like the look of the premise or how it's going to work out. So they'd, they'd had these presumptions going into it. But then what I was reading and what was quite interesting was that for some, they'd been encouraged to watch the show, to give it a go anyway. And what they'd found, they'd found it to be much deeper much richer kind of program than what they'd thought in, the, in terms of the characters that were there. And in some cases, it was not at all what they thought it was going to be, to the extent that having originally with, with these presumptions about what it was going to be like and not wanting to, to watch it, they now are finding themselves on the journey that the show is taking them on. Now, as a church, we're working through a series we've called Living Ready. We're working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And it's uh, Paul's first letter to this Church. It's a really a fledgling church. It's a church that he and Silas, his friend Silas, had been really uh, instrumental in seeing the church being birthed and um, and being established. And we, uh, what we find out when they're in Thessalonica is that they preach the gospel. They go into the synagogues and they teach how Jesus is the one that the prophets had spoken about. He's the one that the people had been waiting for. Their promised Messiah. Their promised. Savior, and they preached the gospel, and there were people that were responding to it, but there were also some people that wanted nothing to do with it. They flat out rejected it to the extent that they forced Paul and Silas out of the city. They had these presumptions about what this new religion was going to be about. And the church itself uh, was facing opposition. It was a young church, and they were facing opposition, living in a culture that was very much at odds with their new way of life. These people have been making these presumptions. These people have rejected it, saying, actually, I don't want anything to do with it. But what we see through this letter is as the gospel is seen and witnessed, as the church lives out its identity as God's people in the day by day, this is seen by those outside the church. And what the church was seeing was that it would attract many to join this journey with Jesus. So just like as I was thinking about that TV show, there were people who were like, actually, I don't want anything to do with it. But as they were encouraged to see see it in action and see it play itself out, they were drawn to it in the same way. That's what the Christian witness and the Christian life uh, does. 
It enables people from the outside to see what is going on. And even those people who would have been in, in conflict with it, who would have been in opposition to it, actually for many will be attracted to the journey with, with Jesus. Now I'd, I've been involved in some, some discipleship huddles uh, and we've worked our way through a book and, and in part of it it's talking about discipleship and it focuses on the relationships that Jesus had. It says actually Jesus' life was three-dimensional in the sense that it involved uh, relationships that were up, so in terms of his relationship with, his, with God the Father. They were in, in terms of uh, with his, the people that were following him and his disciples, and it was out as well. So people who, weren't, uh, who, who were outside of the church, who were outside of, of his discipleship group. So this whole thing actually are relationships, and as Jesus modelled this to us, this is the way that we should look to be as well. In our relationships, there's an up and in and an out. Father with the church and outside the church. And this is what we see come through in this book to the Thessalonians. Phil Moore leads a church in London and he's written really helpful commentaries and he's written one on this letter and he says that when the gospel is demonstrated as well as declared to unbelievers it spreads like wildfire. He says true converts make true changes to their lives which in turn attracts many more people to Jesus. And this is really what we're seeing through this letter, that the change that has come about in people's lives is attractive to people to want to know more about Jesus and to follow him. So if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 4. This, we're going to be looking at the same verses as we read last week. If you were here last week, you'll be aware that I'd planned to cover uh, these uh, 12 verses all in one week, but as I was preparing, I felt actually to split it over a couple of of sermons, I wanted to give us real time to be able to work our way through without rushing, uh, without rushing through, because I think there's a lot of really important stuff for us to be able to unpack um, together. But last week's title was Living Out, although it turned out to be Living Out Part 1. We're going to be doing Part 2 today. And in the earlier parts of this letter, what Paul has done with his church is he's established their new identity. He's saying, look, your new identity is that you're rooted in God, uh, having received the gospel, which is the good news that through Jesus, people can, be, uh, can become a part of God's family. That's the news that they had received. But the gospel that saves also calls us and also enables us to live differently. There should be something in our lives uh, that, that works itself out in practical ways so that we live lives that are pleasing to God. That was kind of what we were looking at last week. That was Paul's overriding message. Live lives that are pleasing to God, And it's worked out in the everyday as we walk with God. It's worked out as our relationship with him deepens, as we get to know him more. And as we continue to walk with God, as we grow in knowing him, the more we will keep asking ourselves the question in all areas of, of life, is this something that would please God? And Paul, in, these, in chapter 4, he addresses three areas of life in particular. Uh, we can assume that this is because this, there were certain things going on within the church that he wanted to address specifically. There were three areas that he wants to encourage and challenge the church in as they seek to live lives that are pleasing to God. And the areas that he chooses to highlight are those of sex, relationships and work. And we spent some time last week really thinking about what it is to, to live a life that's pleasing to God. And we focused on that first area that Paul picks up on of sex. We're going to look at relationships and work this morning. So let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read all 12 uh, verses again. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus 
that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Okay, so we really focused on the first eight verses of that last week. We're going to be focusing our attention and our time on verses 9 through to 12 this morning. So let's think about what Paul is saying now as he moves on to talk about relationships. Now earlier in Paul's letter, I think this is going back to the first week, Paul, he commends the Thessalonians for their labour of love. Do you remember if you were here, he highlights three things that they're doing really well. I don't know why I just did five on my hand. Three things. He talks about uh, faith, love and hope as things that the church would really doing well in. Things that he was thankful to God for. And the love that Paul is speaking of here, when he commends the church, it's not love for the worthy or for those that... Uh, they felt that were deserving of it. It's not a love that was desiring to have or to gain for itself, but the love that Paul was talking about was a love that is given quite irrespective of merit, quite irrespective of how how deserving we think people are to receive it. And it's a love that doesn't seek to possess or to have for itself, but it's a love that seeks to give. And the Greek word that Paul uses is agape. Okay, so this is type of love. It's really it's a reflection of the love that God has shown us that we should be uh, the way that we should be loving everyone, irrespective of whether we think they're deserving of it or not. That's the way that we're called to love. Just as God has loved us, so we are called to love others. But when Paul brings the conversation round in this passage that we're looking at today, he brings it round uh, to speaking about love again. But he's not talking. He doesn't use that same word. He doesn't use that word agape. Now, a few months ago, I can't remember how many months ago, I can't remember the sermon that Mike was talking about, but Mike bought in a tub of cheese. Does anyone remember this? He bought in a tub of cheese. Does anyone remember what cheese it was? It was Philadelphia. Okay, Mike, you've you've half done your job. People remembered what the cheese was. Does anyone remember why he was using it or what Philadelphia is about? And don't tell, it's not about cheese. What kind of love? Philadelphia. Well done, brotherly love. So, it's this Greek word, Philadelphia, which is different to agape. It means brotherly love. You've done your job, Mike. That's one of the most successful visual aids we've had. Well done. So, agape is the way in which we're called to love everyone, but we're also told to exercise a Philadelphia, a brotherly love, that seeks to unite Christians to one another. Okay. We see this spoken of again in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I'll just read to you. So this is uh, Peter writing. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers, the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what um, Peter's doing here is he is uh, saying that the, the call for believers to, want, to love one another is rooted in our conversion. He's saying because you've received new life, because you've received the word of God, because you've received the good news and you've put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, because you've now moved from, from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, because of that, what flows out of that is a love for other believers. It's a love for your brothers and sisters, those in God's family. You see, the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's an outworking of our salvation, but it's also an indication of the new life that you have. Let me explain that by looking at 1 John 3.14. 1 John 3.14 says that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So it's an indication of what God has done in our lives. It's not an optional extra that we can take or leave. In all honesty, sometimes it's not always easy to love our brothers and sisters within the church. It's not because actually relationships in whatever context you're looking at, whenever you get people together, there's often differences and difficulties and things that will arise. But actually what we're coming through here is that this love that we're called to have isn't an optional lecture that we can take or leave. It's something that we're all called to do. But actually it's also an assurance of our salvation. Because we've been brought out of death and into life, therefore we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So actually what we find is we start, as we find that, we're, that we're growing in our love for one another and our care and support of one another, uh, actually it's, it's a sign to us that God's done something within us. So what qualifies someone to receive this love that Paul is talking about? It's quite simple. The only qualification for someone to receive this love is this. Are they a member of God's family? What qualifies someone to give this kind of love? The answer is quite simple. Are they a member of God's family? If you're a part of God's family, then, you should be, then we should be those that love one another. In the way that God calls us to. Not only that we should be those who, who we should all expect to receive love from our brothers and sisters as well. Now in these verses, Paul's instructing the believers in the practical outworking of their faith. He's saying, look, this is what your faith is to look like in the everyday. It's not just a theory thing, it has a practical outworking. We, it's evident, we can see it. So what might loving your brothers and sisters in Christ actually look like? Here are some thoughts. That I had when I was preparing for today. It's love that doesn't manipulate others to win their approval. Instead, it seeks to build them up. Doesn't use others for its own means, but delights to serve others for their good and for their welfare. What does this love look like? I think it looks like encouragement. I think it looks like standing with one another in prayer. It's about rejoicing 
with one another. We were doing that today with the news that James was sharing about his job. So that's part of what it is to love one another, to celebrate and to rejoice together. But it also looks like mourning together. It's speaking truth when it needs to be heard. It's practical care when people need a bit more help. It's speaking well of one another, whether people are here or whether they're not, speaking well of them. It's about being patient. It's bringing challenge when it's required. It's about carrying one another's burdens. And I'm sure there's much more that could be added to that. And I would actually encourage you, as we go from here today, think on this. Think about what this call to love one another as brothers and sisters in God's family. What does it look like in the day to day? Practically, how could you be showing someone else uh, that one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, that you are for them, that you love them, that you care for them. Now, Paul says he's got no need to teach the Thessalonians about brotherly love because it's been something that God has taught them himself. Just jump back to, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Okay, So we've got this prophecy. This is a promise that God is making about something that he's going to do. So in Jeremiah 31... Verse 33, he says, this is uh, God speaking, God making a promise. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. So there's a promise that God has made. That whereas before the laws were written on tablets or scrolls, God's saying, actually, there's going to come a point where I'm going to write my law on people's hearts. I'm going to come and I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something that's different to the way things have been done before. Before... When, when the law was written on tablets or scrolls, it was a, they had to be internalized. So it was an outside thing coming in. Okay? So they had it out, external laws written down and they had to internalize it. But what God does through the new covenant, through the sacrifice that Jesus made, made for us, through the new life that we've been born into, rather than an outside in thing happening, through Christ, God changes us from the inside out. So God comes and he writes the law on our hearts. He teaches us things. In verse 8 of this chapter that we're looking at, we looked at it a little bit last week. It says that God gives us the Holy Spirit. Day by day, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. And it's the Spirit who writes the law of God on our hearts. He teaches us. He enables us to obey what God has called us to. And it's as we cooperate with the Spirit that we learn how to and how we are able to love one another. That's what Paul means when he's saying, actually, I don't need to teach you about this. This is something that God is teaching you because God has done something new in your hearts. Because you've got the Holy Spirit who lives within you. He teaches you what it is to love your brothers and sisters. And just as the church that we're looking at in Thessalonica were part of the new covenant, that new promise, so are we. Holy Spirit lives in us, given to us day by day. He teaches us and he leads us as we go. Now this call to brotherly love is something that the Thessalonians, they were continuing to do, not just locally, 
but we're told here to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, so throughout the whole region which they found themselves. Now going back to week two of our series, I think the title of it was uh, Living Examples. And one of the things we were thinking about is that as a church, their reputation, or rather their example, had been spreading far and wide. This was a church that was getting known. And they were a church that was being known for all the right reasons. And Paul is saying to them, he's saying, look, actually, um, you, you are doing really well with this. We know that you are loving the brothers and sisters throughout the whole region and area of Macedonia. And it would have been something that would have been recognised from those outside of the church. Their reputation was good. This would have been a part of that. When Jesus was with his disciples in John 13, he says this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The love that believers demonstrate to one another, the love that we are called to demonstrate to one another, not just here in our church, but actually to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That love unites Christians together. That's part of what it does. Because in the same breath, it's also witnessed by those outside of the church. It sends a message to those who are looking on at the church or who are looking in at the church. It speaks something to them. How will people looking at us know who we follow and who we live for? Jesus tells us, by the way that we love one another. That's how people will know. Remember, we're talking about this three-dimensional Christian life. It's up, it's in, it's out. It's about us with God, it's about us with one another, and it's about us and the world outside the church. And the way that we are with one another and the way that we love one another will send a message to those outside of the church about what the church is about and about the work that God has done in our lives and about what it means to be a part of God's family. Now, the, the Thessalonians were doing this. They were doing this really well. But Paul urges them further, do this more and more. It's not that Paul's being cruel to them. He's already commended them on how well they're doing, but actually he's exhorting them that there's more for you to be growing into. This love that you're so clearly demonstrating and you're so clearly doing well in. I just want to encourage you, keep going. Keep growing in it. See, love, um, love for one another that's demonstrated and worked out in practical ways is something that we should be seeking to grow in. in Colossians 3, I know we're jumping around quite a bit today. There's lots of really excellent stuff for us to search through together. Colossians 3, verse 12. It says, Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together, in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful what Paul's writing here to this church speaking about these virtues he's speaking about humility and meekness and patience and kindness 
bearing with one another, being able to forgive one another, all of these things that we're called to do. This is what life together looks like in the family of God, in the body of the church. But he says, actually, there's, there's one of these virtues which is above all the other virtues. And it's love. And the thing that came to my mind, it's almost like, like an orchestra, and love is the, the conductor of everything else that happens. Because it's love that, that is able to bind all the other things together, to bring them into tune and harmony with one another. And all of the other virtues flow out of and are directed by love. And we're told to put it on. Clothe yourselves with love. There's a guy named James Smith, and he's written a book called You Are What You Love, talking about the power of, of habit in a very helpful, helpful way. And he says, picking up on these verses in Colossians, he says that love is the ultimate virtue. We are to intentionally clothe ourselves with love. So the love that attracts us to God is something that grows through practice and repetition. And if we want to pursue God, we need to immerse ourselves in rituals and rhythms and practices whereby the love of God seeps into our very character and is woven into not just how we think, but who we are. Effectively, what he's saying there is walking with God every day, being dependent on him, having good practices and rhythms to life where we're regularly drawing to God and drawing from God, allowing him to teach us, to shape us and to change us. So what will happen is that we learn to love as God loves more and more. But it has to come from, from that relationship with God which enables us to have something in which we can give out. Then flowing out of his appeal, now Paul's been talking about this appeal to, to brotherly love, to the way that believers are to love one another. Paul, come, he, he kind of switches his tack now and he talks about work. Now in Paul's writing to this church, it's clear there's a group within the church who, rather than needing help, needed a warning. They needed to be called up on something. Something that they were going in a certain direction that was not going to be helpful. And they needed to be warned and called away from it. In chapter 5, we'll, obviously we'll come to this in a few weeks' time. But in chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul says to the church, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So there's a group within the church who are a bit idle, not a bit idle, who are, who are idle in their nature and in their attitude and the understanding of this is that there were those, they had an irresponsible attitude to work. Okay? So they had this irresponsible attitude to work. And it seems to be a fairly deep-rooted issue in this church, as it's something that Paul comes back to in the second letter that he writes to the same church. He picks up on this again. So it's clearly something that, that is a, a real issue within this church. And Paul is really just wanting to see it worked out, that it's not allowed to, to take any, any further route and that it's dealt with. You see, in 2 Thessalonians 3, this is what Paul writes in verse 11. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So clearly this group, this group who, are, who Paul calls out as being idle, uh, need to receive a warning. Something's got to change. Now it's important that we draw a distinction between those who are unable to work and those who are unwilling to work. 
Two very, very different groups. There are many reasons why people are unable to work. It could be health, it could be forced unemployment, a situation that they've not necessarily wanted, although they are looking actively for work. It could be that you've got men and women who are raising families. So there are lots of reasons why people are unable to work, but that's not what Paul is picking up on. He's saying actually there's a group here of those who are, who are unwilling to work. And in Thessalonica, it seems to be there was this group who seemed to be living idly when work was available. And instead of working and earning a, a living for themselves, what they were doing was depending on the charity and support of the church family, even though they themselves could have been working. And we have to recognise where Paul's come from in terms of where, where this has come from in this letter. Remember, he's just been talking about relationships, relationships within the church. We're to love one another. We're to demonstrate this love to one another. And so out of that, he's now talking about, but there's a group among you here. It's almost like he's saying, you're kind of taking advantage of what's going on in the church here. Are you serving your brothers and sisters in your idleness? Because actually you're kind of depending on them in a way that is unhealthy and is unhelpful when in fact you could be out and working and earning a wage and earning a living. It's possible that some of this group, they might have had Christ's return in mind. We'll look at that uh, in the next time as we pick up uh, what Paul's actually about to go on. He talks about Christ's return. And it could have been that some of this group, they were expecting Christ's return to be imminent. They were waiting any day. So it maybe thought, almost, what's the point in working? Because Jesus is going to be coming back real soon. So it could have been that. We don't really have a clear answer for it. But what is clear is that there was a group who had given up work and had needed to be exhorted to go back to it. That was the, the situation that the church had found itself in. And Paul tells us, he says, that those who are idle, rather than tending to their own business, they find themselves meddling in other people's business. Because they've not got something to occupy themselves, they've not got something to give themselves to, he calls them, he calls them busybodies. He says, actually, you turn into these people that just are, are meddling in other people's business. It's, it's not a peaceful situation. It's not a helpful situation to have when you're looking to bring unity and harmony within the church. And so Paul's instruction, it might sound very simple, it might actually sound fairly mundane, but this is Paul's instruction. He says, uh, you, I want you to seek to live quietly, I want you to mind your own affairs, and I want you to work. I want you to earn a living. In doing so, you're serving God and you're serving others. Now, when Paul is writing to different churches, and we'll see this through all of the letters that he writes, he has to challenge and, conf and confront the prevailing attitudes and standards of the time. So within the cultures, within the cities and towns in which the churches find themselves, there's these prevailing cultures and attitudes in which they find themselves, ways in which the wider society would say it's okay to live. And often, uh, when not just Paul, but actually with, with all of the writers, they, they're challenging things that are common in those cultures. And when Paul calls the believers to work with their hands, he specifically says work with your hands, what he's doing, he's going against an attitude that was common among the Greek society, in particular, that practical work, or to work with your hands, was not an honourable thing. That was the attitude. It was, it, was not, uh, it was degrading for free men to work with their hands. It was seen as something for slaves. And actually, what they would have said was people should call themselves to something higher, whether it's something like philosophy or something. That's the way that the culture would have been. But Paul comes in and he says, do you know what? This is what society might say. This is what culture might say. But I'm saying, actually, uh, work with your hands. 
You should be working. And he, really, we go back to Genesis, uh, where we see work as a part of God's original mandate for his creation. It's what God had intended for men and women to, to be doing, is to have something to do, to give their hands to working. It was good, wasn't it? When God, when God looked at his creation, he said it was good. And a lot of the things we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, whether we're talking about sex, relationships or work, when we go back to look at creation, we see those three things there and they were declared as good by God. But they've been distorted and fractured and corrupted by sin. And what Paul's doing in this letter, he's saying, look, let's reclaim these areas of life and let's seek to to live them out the way that God would have us live them out. And you see, as we go back to Genesis and we see, uh, we see work as part of God's original mandate and plan for creation, we see that there is dignity to all honest work. It has value. And again, what Paul's doing, he's reclaiming work as something good. And you see, he's really challenging that group who have just said, actually, we're not going to be a part of that. We're going to rely on the charity of our brothers. We're going to allow them to work. And if I can put it this way, they were sponging off people that were working to, to provide for everyone else. As followers of Jesus, we absolutely should love those in need by supporting them. We don't want to swing the pendulum so far one way that we've completely missed the point of what's been said. And there's much in the Bible that says that we should be those who support one another, that we look after those who need uh, more support. And there will be times where actually, for, for, for some of us, even, maybe even for many of us, we'll go through times where we will need that dependence on the church in various ways. And it's good, and it's right, and we should do that. And we're going to be looking at that in a few weeks in, in the new series we're, we're moving on to in terms of what it is to live together and to share, have things in common and to share with one another. That's not the point that Paul's making. Yes, we should love those in need by supporting them, but we should also, if able, be those who are willing to support ourselves and support our family. Because actually that's an expression of loving the the family, loving the wider church family as well. Now we're called to live faithfully in all areas of life, including work. And in those settings, how we work is as much a witness as what we say at work. We don't need to withdraw from work in order to be holy. Maybe that could have been the attitude of this particular group in Thessalonica. They thought, we've been called to be holy. Let's withdraw ourselves from work and able to be able to do that and to give ourselves to some more important things. But actually, we've got this call to live lives that are pleasing to God and for holiness. We don't have to withdraw from work in order to do that. But instead, what we need to do is to participate in the world or in that world in a new and in a different way. That reflects the way that God would call us to. Remember, we're thinking about up. We're living lives that are pleasing to God. We're living in. We're living in the context of love for our fellow believers. And we're also living out with a missional concern for the wider world. We want to be able to demonstrate the gospel. And we want to demonstrate our changed lives in every area of our life. And that can and that should include work if we're people who are in work. Paul is certain. He is absolutely certain that the way in which believers work and their attitude towards it is a witness to those outside of the church. He makes that uh, pretty clear in what he's written in these verses. 
He wants them to command the respect of outsiders. He's not saying that I want you to live in ways that are pleasing to outsiders, but he's saying, actually, I want you to live in such a way that you command their respect. He wants them to be well thought of. And the way he wants them to be well thought of is by demonstrating their relationship with God through the way that they work. I'm going to be kind of drawing things to a close now. But I mentioned this guy, James Smith, who'd written this book, You Are What You Love. And he, following on from, from the bit I just read about clothing yourselves with love, he talks about work a bit. And he says that this is one of the reasons, uh, in terms of growing in love and in growing um, what it is to be clothed in love and becoming more like God, he says, in terms of the way that we love one another, he says, this is one of the reasons why worship is not some escape from the work week. To the contrary, our worship rituals train our hearts and aim our desires toward God and his kingdom so that when we are sent from worship to take up our work, we do so with a habituated orientation toward the lover of our souls. In as much as when we, what worship does is it enables us to reorient our attention and our hearts to God, to the lover of our souls, and it's from that place that we are then sent to work, or we're sent to do whatever we do in the day to day. But that has to be the place where, where, we, where we find our rest and where we find ourselves being prepared for, for the week, whatever it might look like. So this is Paul's heart. That the church should be a church who are living it out. It's Paul's heart that the gospel that saves is also the gospel that enables us to live out our faith in practical ways in the everyday. It's not just about the words that we speak. It's actually there's a practical outworking to the, to the change. Not just the change that God has made in us. Actually the fact that we have been changed by God. That we've been given new life. And while he addresses these particular areas of sex, relationships and work, we need to remember that the overriding call is that in all these things and in every area of our lives, Paul's call is this, is that we live lives that are pleasing to God. I mentioned last week that, say sometimes, often it can be costly to live these lives because it means change and it means having to leave certain things behind or to live in certain ways that there's a cost involved but while it's costly it's also contagious in as much as it speaks a message to people who are who are outside of God's family at this point and individually and as a church we have an opportunity to be able to demonstrate God's love and to be able to demonstrate what new life in Jesus looks like in such a way that those people who maybe would have at some point rejected it or not wanted anything to do with it as they see us living faithfully day by day practically out working what it is to please God through our relationships up with God in among the church and out in the world outside give people an opportunity to see what it is to be part of God's family and as Paul says do you know what many will be attracted to join this journey as well shall we pray